Welcome to the Fellowship Regional Church Podcast. Morning. Morning. Do you want to turn the lights back on or you like them low? You like it dark? All right, we'll leave them off for you. All right, cool. If somebody were to ask you, how did you get here? Like, how did you get to the place where you are right now? It would be difficult to pinpoint a certain event. You could start with, well, I got to know Jesus, and that's how I got here. Okay. But something led to that. What, what brought you to that? Maybe it was parents. Maybe, you, maybe your parents uh, raised you in church, and so your entire life you were just kind of groomed for a decision like this. You grew up in a family to where things just, you just saw this was a good way to live. Maybe it was the other way. Maybe you grew up in a place to where you were convinced there's got to be something better than this. Something. These people are insane, and I need something different. You could start with that, but in one way or the other, our family and our friends typically have something to do with changing the trajectory of our life, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. And something alters us to get at that place. I can begin and, and say, well, at seven years old, um, my heart was very convicted that I needed to become a Christian. But there were some events that happened before that. Just a few weeks prior to that, I watched another little guy, a grade above me, walk down the aisle at church, went all the way up there, he gave his confession of faith, and then he got into the baptistry, and Luke Bycroft, as a little boy, was baptized, and I went home and I said to my mom, what did, what did Luke do today? What was Luke getting, why does Luke get to and I don't get to? He, now he gets to eat crackers and juice, and he gets to be in the pool, and I don't, why, I don't, how do I get to play? And she said, it's not playing. Luke made a decision today that he wants to serve Jesus with the rest of his life and um, he wants to go to heaven. Am I going to hell? <laughs> I think inside she was like, <laughs> time will only tell. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. So there's decisions outside of all the other decisions we've been making on the playground and in the classroom and in Sunday school. There's other decisions? Yeah. Well, I don't know about what this is. I need this explained to me. A couple weeks later. So I can go back and I can say, well, it was, it was at my baptism. Well, it really wasn't at my baptism that everything changed. It was kind of before that. But I was raised by two Christian parents who loved Jesus. So that was kind of it. But why did they make those decisions? It was because their life was not like mine. They were survivors. They came out of some really dark places. So they were on the run like... We got to survive. We got to figure out how to do things. All we know is what not to do. What we should do is just go to church and do the right thing as much as we know what that is. So that kind of changed my trajectory. But even after that, after I got to that place, why would we still continue to grow? 
Some of you have been Christians for 50 years, 60 years. That might be more of a miracle than the beginning, isn't it? How do you last that long? How do you stay in the game that long? How do you see all the hurt and all the pain and all the trouble and experience much of it in your life, and yet still you keep your eyes focused on Jesus? How do you do that? Might be a good time for us to say, older people who have been down that road, who continue to come here, we need you to continue to come here. We know we're brazen. We know we don't do anything right. We know our music's too loud. We screw everything up. We know this. We, but we need you here because we don't know how to do that other part. What causes you to get to where you are right now? We would like to say, well, it was one major good decision. Come on. I don't know about you, but most of the growth I've ever had with Christ had a lot to do with my failure, not so much my success. Very few times have I walked out of a situation to where I've won or I've succeeded and I thought, you know what? God is so good to me. What typically happens is I walk right out of a failure of some sort and I say, oh dear God, please don't let that ever happen to me again. What is the trajectory? What changes our trajectory? be impossible to put your finger on one single thing. It's like asking the question, where does outer space begin and the sky end? Well, there's not really a definite line. There's not like a map. It's not like a county line. You don't get partway up and be like, and now, welcome to outer space. It doesn't say that. You just, just you're there. The disciples were no different. They followed Jesus around and moment by moment, their eyes are opened up to some new enlightenment that they couldn't understand before. And one second they think they got it, which I've been there, and I'm sure you have too. I got this, I got this. I know exactly what the Christian walk is about. I know exactly what I need to be doing with my life. It's like three seconds later, it's like, I know exactly, you know? And that's the way it always goes. We find ourselves like the disciples who... We know who Jesus is. We've got him. It's good. They get, up on, they get in a boat with him, and he says, hey, take me across to the other side. Then all of a sudden, the storm comes up. The wind and the waves are howling, and these guys, they know who he is. He's the Messiah. We know who he is. This is Jesus. He's the miracle worker. When we're with him, we're safe. And then suddenly, the storm is so big, we forgot that Jesus is in the boat asleep. They go running down to the bottom, hollering into the bottom of the boat, yo, Jesus, do you still care? Jesus wipes the sleep from his eyes. He emerges. What's all the yelling for? They're like, I don't know if you noticed or not, but we're all going to die. Jesus walks out to the front of the boat and he goes, shh, shh. Everything just, the clouds clear up, the wind stops blowing, and every fisherman on there, who is very adept at understanding the weather, suddenly looks at one another and says, who is this guy? What manner of man is this? I find myself in that same spot. I know Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. You know, my job is to tell you about Jesus. And then I have these weeks to where suddenly I'm like, someone should tell me more about Jesus. I obviously don't know enough about Jesus. It's a process. We're all in process all the time. The disciples were in process. This sermon started off completely different. 
than where it's going. It started off as this little bitty miracle story. I was so amped up. It's so cute. It's, such, it's so cute. It's a cute little miracle story. And I wanted to get it out and I wanted to show it to you. And some of you just be like, ah, that's just adorable. And then I could be like, I know. Isn't this just cute? And you can say, that's cute. In fact, let me read you the, let me read you the parable or the story. Matthew 17, 24 to 27. It's so cool. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect their tribute, their duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? Peter said, from others. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we will not offend, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it for my taxes and for yours. Isn't that cute? It's the coolest. You know what's so cool about it? It just sits there. You know what else is cool about it? It's it doesn't have an ending. Jesus says it, and then Peter leaves. And you don't even know what happens next. But you see it, don't you? Peter goes down there, throws his hook in. Zzz, this is the weirdest thing I've ever been asked to do. I've been catching fish my whole life. You know what I've never seen in the mouth of a fish? Money. <laughs> ever. Something tugs at the line. He sets the hook. Like, this is not real. Reels it in. He's like, there's no way. Are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> you know? It just... All these questions come running to my mind. Why did Jesus speak first? It says that Peter walked in the door, didn't, wasn't able to say a word, and Jesus turned to him and says, Hey, Peter, glad you're here. I need to ask you a question. Peter's there to talk about the temple tax. He didn't even get to say it. And Jesus says, uh, Hey, Peter, glad you're here. Who do the kings of the earth collect their taxes from? And Peter's got to be like, That's why I was just coming to ask you. The word anticipated Jesus anticipated what was coming through the door and when Peter walked in Peter glad you're here I was going to ask you something why was that necessary why was it necessary for him to go down to the lake and throw a line in you know what would have been just as cool here's what would have been just as cool is if Jesus would have been like hey Peter what's that in your ear <laughs> give that to our friends that would have been fine what's with the fishing thing all these things and I began to like look at the story so I started backing up there's a story there but same thing happened I had all these questions and I backed up it's another story and I had all these other questions and I'm like where does this where does it begin I'm sure it begins further back than I went but for the sake of today and time and this week, the next couple of weeks, start at Matthew 16. Something very important that happens. 
conversation that takes place. But the conversation that takes place is only part of it. The location is important as well. And see, sometimes when we read scripture, just because we're, we're Americans and we, we don't live there and we haven't lived there and we, we don't understand the language and we're so far removed from it and the, and, the, and the culture, the way of life, it's hard to really make sense of some of this stuff. But then when you get to dive into it, there's things that just begin to appear and you begin to say, this is pretty deep. Matthew chapter 16 Starting in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Conversation's important. Who you say Jesus is, is important. That's important. But it's important here because they went to Caesarea Philippi. I know. Anybody else in Israel would have went, what are they doing in Caesarea Philippi? That's a weird place for them to have this conversation. Because it begins in a very bizarre way. Caesarea Philippi is at the base of a mountain called Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain in all of Israel. It is one gigantic rock. This massive mountain just shoots up from the ground 7,336 feet or something like that. Massive mountain for there. Just to give you an idea how big this mountain is in comparison to the number two mountain, the number two mountain is like 3,400 feet. This one's 7,000. This is a massive mountain. And they went 25 miles north of Galilee to go have this conversation by this mountain. This is a massive rock. Here's something else that's interesting about this rock. Is it's the Old Testament site called Baal Hermon. Mount Hermon or Baal Hermon. They would build these temples to their foreign gods. And the foreign god that they worshipped in the Old Testament days in the Canaanite Syrian countries was this. Baal. Baal was the god of fertility. He had this bull-like head with these horns on a human body. Just this real creepy looking cowman guy. He was the God of fertility. And at times of crisis, the God of fertility, as everybody understood, in times of crisis, the only way to get the God of fertility to bring the crops and the livestock back is to make a sacrifice. But here's the twisted part. The only, the only sacrifice that would really bring all that back would be an infant child. And so the only way we could get the God of fertility to bless our life is for us to make a baby and then kill it for him. They had this whole series of stories about who Baal was. Baal was thought to be the God that had finally dominated every other God around. He had beat up the lightning God, the God of all the storms, the God of the wind, the God of the waves. He had even gone so far as to conquer death, which is interesting. They said that, Ga that Baal was the God that conquered death. Here's, here's the reasoning. Every single year, we think Baal is dead because everything dies 
And then you know what happens in the spring? Baal brings it all back again. Okay. Come on. That's your, that's your proof? Like this, the God of fertility, he overcomes death. Oh, we think he's almost out. He's almost out. And then he brings the crops back. And so Baal was thought to be the God who resurrected from the dead. And he's the one who gives us every good and, uh, every good and wonderful thing in our life. And that's, the, that's how they thought of the Old Testament God, Baal. But things change and land changes. So this area called Baal Hermon changes and it becomes known as Peneus. The culture changes too. As different people come in and they, and they overtake one group of people and then another group comes in and overtakes that people, they bring their, their culture and their religions. And so then the Greeks come through and they dominate this area and the Greeks bring their own god. His name is Pan. You familiar with Pan? Also the god of fertility. He is the half goat man, right? He's got a goat body and then he's got the torso from here up and he's got the little horns on his head. Typically he's pretty stacked, pretty ripped up, you know. This is him. He's also the god of fertility. It was said of him that this place was the birthplace of Pan. On top of this mountain. He is this guy. He was considered to be the god of the shepherds and the flocks and the desolate places and the mountains and the wilderness. This is the God of the shepherd. It's, it is said that, that he was so ugly and so scary and so terrifying that when he was born, his own mother abandoned him because he was just so horrifying to see. In fact, the origin of the word panic comes from pan. He instilled fear everywhere. That was the teaching. This is called Panaeus. In fact, if you look at it now, if you Google it and you look at, you look at uh, images of it, there's this huge wall, I can't remember how big it is, like 100 foot high by like 500 foot uh, long. And it's got all these carvings, like temple carvings. You've probably seen pictures of it. Got these niches in rocks. And in those niches would have been these idols of Pan, the god of fertility. It's also interesting, this mountain had a cave in it. This cave, as you would go into it, there was, a, there was like a cistern, like a spring, a natural spring that went down in there. This cave was big and you would walk in and it was just kind of a, kind of a scary, scary thing. And then they would talk about it. And it would be these weird noises that would rumble because of the water and the earthquakes. And it would echo through this hole. And they referred to that hole in that mountain, that cave right there, they referred to it as the gates to the underground. I know this is a lot of information. We'll get back to it. The gates of the underground. If the underworld had a, let's go back to Mario Brothers, a warp zone, we would warp to there by going through this cave because that is the gate to the underworld, to hell, if you will, the gates of hell. Inside this spring, Josephus, a historian of Jesus' day, he said no sounding line had ever been found to be long enough to find the bottom of this well this, this natural spring that is there. In fact, the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee, the two main life sources that funds the fishing, that keeps the crops, that keeps the livestock, everything, that, 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 that the Jews pull their, their um, livelihood from is fed from the spring. The main source is the spring that comes out of this mountain in Mount Hermon, 25 miles north. 
it gets a little more interesting too. 20 years before the birth of Jesus, this place was called Panaeus. Then suddenly, there was a switch in Rome. Caesar Augustus was the emperor. Herod the Great was now the ruler of Judea. Herod the Great, in an, in an opportunity to try to make a friend before he needed a friend, went to Mount Hermon and built a massive temple, white marble temple, up on top of Mount Hermon for Caesar Augustus, check this out, who they called Caesar Augustus, the son of God. And they built this massive white marble temple up on top of there. And Herod called it Caesarea, or he calls it this, uh, this temple for Caesar Augustus. This is, the, this is a temple for the God Caesar Augustus. Years later, his son goes and, and, does an, and builds an entire city, founds an entire city there, and names it after Caesar Tiberius, who was the emperor after Augustus. Philip the Tetrarch, King Herod's son, he names it Caesarea Philippi. It's kind of like calling a place, like I'd like to call this place Iola, and then I move away, and this place is called Iola, and then I move away. I'm like, I would like to name this, this town after my town, except I'm going to call it Iola Jared. What's this? This is Caesarea. Caesarea Philippi. <laughs> Name it after myself. So, and this is what he does. So the city is founded here. These emperors are thought to be gods. These emperors of Rome are thought to be gods. Okay, so I've given you all this history. Let's go back and let's read the verse one more time. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Amidst all the spiritual clamor in the air, the rubble, the idols, the broken altars, centuries of false god worship. In the shadows of all of these mythological gods, Jesus takes his disciples and he takes them to this place. And he says, now, who am I? Who do you say that I am? Simon says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosened in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Let's review. They are standing at the base of the biggest rock in Israel. 
And Jesus looks at Simon, who he now calls Peter, which means the rock. He looks at him and he says, good answer, the rock. And upon that mountain-sized rock of a revelation that you obviously got from God, I'm going to build this church. Like the stories of Baal overcoming death, Jesus tells his disciples that if you're going to, you think you know about resurrection? I'm going to show you a real resurrection. You think Baal resurrects every spring? I'm going to show you a real resurrection. We're going to go to Jerusalem shortly. And I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and it's going to be terrible. And then I'm going to come back. And I'll show you a real resurrection. Contrary to the stories of Pan, the God of the shepherds and the desolate places and the keeper of the gates of hell, Jesus, the good shepherd, says that he will hand over to them the very keys to the kingdom of heaven and that the gates of hell will, here it is, be ransacked. This was a place they thought to be literally the gates of hell. And Jesus looks at him and he goes, in the gates of hell? Like, this isn't the gates of hell. It's going to be ransacked. This church is going to be so big. You know, kind of like the temple that Herod the Great built up there for Caesar, uh, whatever his name is. I'm going to build a church on a mountain-sized revelation of who I am that you can only know if you know me. And this thing is going to be so vicious and so strong and so good that it will itself run straight towards the gates of hell and dismantle them. At the very site where the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee, the life source for the land and livestock originates, Jesus, the giver of life, the true living water, tells his disciples that he's going to pour out every single bit of him for them. At the very location where Caesar Augustus, a mere man, was honored as the Son of God and referred to as the Son of God, Peter recognizes Jesus as the coming one, the anointed one, the coming king and the true Son of God. See, the thing about this story is that this story unless we can understand where we're standing when this conversation takes place, then we don't understand what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, politically, are you satisfied with where we are? And everybody there said, no. Okay, well, I'm going to change it. Religiously speaking, are you satisfied with the current state of the way things are going? And everybody says, no. Good. Because I'm going to change it. Are you satisfied with the history of where you came from? No. What about you? you? Satisfied with the history of where you came from? Come from a long line of highlight films, do you? I don't. No. No, no, Jesus, we're not satisfied with our history either. Do you like knowing that you and your forefathers worship Baal? You like that? No. That you took part in these strange rituals, these fertility rituals, as you can imagine what that consisted of. Proud of that? No. Good. 
I'm going to change that too. Are you dependent on anything else for your livelihood? Just the Jordan and Sea of Galilee. What if I told you there's a deeper well than that? The Samaritan woman says, then give me this drink. If such a thing exists that I can drink and never be thirsty again and not have to come all water, please. Jesus says, you're not satisfied with the, with the water either? No. I'll provide water. You're not, provide, you're not happy with the story about who the God of the shepherds is? No. No, we're not satisfied with that either. Good. Because I am the good shepherd. He walks them through every single element of this story. Let me ask you, do you feel like politically we're kind of in a weird, weird place in our, in our history? Yes. And some of you can say, well, I just try not to get political. You don't have an option. It's coming for you. You're going to get drug into this one way or the other. You're just going to. And so when you look at the landscape, do you think to yourself like, yeah, I mean, this is a, we got good options. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't have good options. And what happens is we get so caught up in that deal, you know what we forget about? There is a king already. There's a king already. And he will let kids play in his sandbox as long as he wants. And they can bash their little toy trucks into each other and they can tattle on one another and they can tell lies about each other and they can kick sand in each other's faces all they want inside the toy box, inside the sandbox. At some point, guess what? The king gets to come home and he'll say, this is my sandbox. <laughs> I'm in charge. You're not in charge. Do we look for that day? Do we think about politics through that lens? He says, you don't like your history? I'm going to change that. Do you like the current state of where the church is? I don't mean just this church. I mean the church in general. I don't. I mean, I'm glad it's there. Sometimes it looks like we're making progress. And then sometimes it doesn't look like we're making much progress. And I look out into the sea of faces that I run into in our community. I think, how in the world, how in the world do we, how do you take a message like this and put it out there for somebody else? Surely everybody's already heard this, right? Is there something I'm going to say to this person that's going to convince them and they're going to be like, you know what, I'm so glad you stopped in here at the donut shop and shared Jesus with me. Can you baptize me here? Is that going to happen? I don't know. When I look at the situation and I look at the church and I see how big these churches get but how watered down the message becomes, you see people getting in trouble see churches making very, very just bizarre decisions. Things they've stood against for hundreds and thousands of years, all of a sudden they're, okay, yeah, we're, we're okay with it now, come on in. And they just changed the whole thing. Like, how did we, how did this happen? 
We go from being this place to where we're supposed to go out and love other people to being this place to where we come and we hide. I'm just looking for my little refuge. need to get me a little bit of Jesus so I can get back out in the world. What Jesus says here is, the point is, you're supposed to take this message and ransack the gates of hell with it. This is weird to me because here's what I think, and I know you think it too. What's the best way that I can keep my kids from being overwhelmed by the sin of the world? Don't let them out. That's it. Keep them indoors. Or at least on one of those monkey backpacks if we got to go outside. How do you keep that kind of thing from happening? How do you keep the world from completely overwhelming everything that we're trying to do? And we revert to this deal to where we say, maybe it's best we just go run and hide. Yet Jesus' message is this. Now, now that you know who I am, now that you know what I do, now that you know everything that I'm going to change and how Caesar Augustus isn't God, he's not the son of God, that's me. And how Pan is not the God of the shepherds, but I am the good shepherd. And how that well at the base of that mountain is not your livelihood. That's not what brings good into your life. What brings good into your life is the living water. And that comes from me. And then he gets to the message and he says, and this message here will ransack the gates of hell. Meaning, you take this message and you run it straight towards the evil that you face. So go out in it, Jesus? Yes, go. It was strike straight in. We're gonna do like a 28 dive or a, someone gonna lead block? Because how do we straight in? It doesn't stand a chance. It cannot prevail over this message. Then what's the message, Jesus? The message is this. Never before in the history of religion, all religions, did any God ever, out of his all-loving, all-powerful, and justness, step from heaven and clothe himself in human weakness to take on every single bit of pain and betrayal in this world so that he can say, I've experienced it before you and I've experienced it with you and know that you're never alone in this, never in the history of religion does a story like that exist. Where a God steps from his paradise and clothes himself in human weakness. The only one that does is Jesus. He's the only one. message is this you're not by yourself you're not alone you don't like your history that's okay you don't like the current state of politics that's okay you don't like where you've been that's okay you don't like the look of your future that's okay I happen to serve a God he's a king and he exists outside of time and space See, he has no beginning and he has no end. And so in his world, guess what? You don't have to care about your future and you don't have to care about your past. He's already wiped it all away and he's prepared something else greater for you. 
And see, if you make yourself a part of his family, something really dynamic happens. You're forgiven and you get this start that you've never had before. Our message that we run out into the world is this. There's a God that loves you, cares about you. He's extending a hand of hope to you. In a world where you feel like there is no hope, there's hope. But you have to go meet him. What can we know from this passage? Just a couple quick things. Number one, Jesus is Lord of all. He doesn't leave us any room to call him anything other than Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. He wasn't just this polite, passive, uh, political protester. He doesn't give you that option. He wasn't a sweet, sweet man with a really nice message. He wasn't that either. You know what he said? He said, I'm God. Either he was or he's lying. And one of those things makes him not a good person, correct? He either is what he says he is or we're damned. He is Lord of all. Second thing, Jesus overcomes our history. Caesar Augustus died. I don't know if you know that. I mean, he put his face on a coin and you can find no sometimes. But as far as he himself, he ceases to exist. I read an article on a PBS website the other day. You know what the question was? It's the strangest thing. How has Christianity lasted this long? It's Compared to all these other religions, how has Christianity lasted this long? You know what word was not in the article? Resurrection. Just so happens that's what we built it on. I mean, that's the reason why. It doesn't have anything to do with... Well, we can say at one point that one of the lines was something like, at best, Jesus was a very good moral teacher. At best, a moral teacher... I think it was Josh McDowell who said he's either the Lord, he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. You have no other option to call him anything but that. If he's lying, he's lying. Then that's not a good moral teacher. If he's wrong, he's a crazy man and he needs locked up. But if it's real, he's him. The one we've been waiting on. The one who came to rescue us. He overcomes our history. The third one is this. Jesus calls us to storm the gates of hell. This is what we can know. What's our message? He loves us. He cares about us. He's coming. He's going to come back. And when he does, we will know it. And it won't be a mystery. It won't be any secrets. We will see him as plain as the unfortunate nose upon my face. We will see him. He will be here. He loves us. He loves his disciples. He calls us to take up our cross and follow him. The meaning of the message is this. He's seen it. He's gone through it. He knows you're hurting. He knows you're confused. He knows you feel lost. He knows you're neglected. He knows you don't have everything that you need. He knows that sometimes, you know what, God does seem to give us more than we can handle. There's a reason for that. Because why else would you run to him? 
Why else would you run to him? You have to be overwhelmed. And he calls us in and he says, I love you and I care about you. Now, storm hell with your message. Our responsibility as Christians is to go out into the world and to engage with other people and let them know this is what's happening next. But Jared, it's going to be awkward. Agreed. Agreed. Super awkward. So long as you don't have a sandwich sign on, you know, people will probably listen. From everything statistics say, if you spend any amount of time with somebody and you invite them to church, they'll say yes. They will come. But we have to have that boldness to walk out into the world to storm the gates of hell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for your word and we pray that you will give us the bravery and the, and the trust to rely on you and to listen to the Holy Spirit, Lord, as you direct us um, and as you direct our conversation. Lord, we don't, we understand that we're not, we're not racing out and trying to make people feel awkward or terrify people, but that your Holy Spirit is going to lead us into these certain places and certain times and certain conversations and people who have needs. Lord, we ask that in those moments that, that we will have the words. We're like the disciples who, who, who feared what they would say when they would be persecuted or, or, or arrested. Lord, that you will give us the words that we need when we need them. Pray that you will do that for us. We thank you so much for everything you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful afternoon.